Well, good morning to you. I am not quite sure what is going on with my um, intro today, uh, but I do not seem to be able to play it for you. It's not ever one of my shows, uh, one of my first shows back after a short break, unless we have some kind of technical hitch, is it? <laughs> but I am very, very glad to be back with you today. We are going to be talking about Chinese New Year. Um, specifically Lunar New Year. We're going to look at the difference between the two of them. We are going to be thinking about why we should still be talking about Lunar New Year um, a week or so after the whole um, hype has died down. We're going to look at some ways that we can discuss Lunar New Year in the classroom and just generally chat about what's been going on over the last few weeks. That is the plan for today's show. It is a cold, cold morning here in Gloucestershire. We are on, well, are we two degrees? Oh, so actually not that cold. It is not so bad today. It is my kind of weather. I have said this before. I quite enjoy when, uh, when it is cold and grey. Um, I'm going to be honest, I'm one of the few people who is uh, not looking forward to the summer coming back, who is not looking forward to the warm weather. I do not enjoy that at all, but I am enjoying the, the cold while I have it. Poppy has texted in to say good morning. Good morning to you, Poppy. Uh, so, so glad to have you joining us this morning. That does remind me that if you would like to text in, you can. If you are listening to me here live on the Podbean app, you are more than welcome to interact with the show this morning. If you are not listening via Podbean and you are using one of our other platforms, uh, Spotify, Apple Music, anywhere that uh, the podcast can be downloaded, you can always tweet me at Mr. D. Lester on Twitter if you would like to, to join in with the show. And that applies even if you are listening back. So if you are not joining me for breakfast, maybe it's Wednesday afternoon while you're listening to this, maybe it's Friday night and you are spending a wonderful Friday night listening to everything that I have to say, um, you can always tweet me because, as I've said before, I do shows about things that I'm interested in and, and that interest will always remain. Um, I don't just kind of limit my interest to a Saturday morning. So I'm always, always happy to hear from you. You can also, of course, um, call into the show if that is something you would like to do, if you'd like to engage that way, you can also do that via the Podbean app. Please do engage because I'm always really happy to, um, to hear from people. So let's think about... Because it has been an interesting time um, in British education lately we have been thinking a lot about pay um because of course the the neu strike news has filled our feeds um over the last couple of weeks and we'll continue to do so and we'll continue to do so um i personally work in an independent school um and so we were not balloted to strike this time which uh, I'm going to be honest is is fine by me. I personally do not engage in in striking. 
um, that is not for me. I don't pass judgment on those who do. Um, as we know, everybody has got to do in their profession what seems best for them, what is right for them in that moment. And so if you are striking on, on Wednesday and going forward, I wish you the, the very best of luck with that. Um, and I really do hope that it gets the outcome that everybody is hoping for. That is kind of all I'm going to say on the strikes, if I'm very, very honest, because, like I said, I work in an independent school. We were not balloted for strike action. And so it's not really my place to to pass comments. But there are lots of places online where the strikes are still being discussed. There are lots of shows um, where the the decision to strike can be engaged with. And so, of course, please do make sure that you have your say, because if there is one thing that that we know to be very important, it is to hear all sides of the conversation, to hear from those who are choosing to strike, those who are not choosing to strike, those who are um, unable to strike because of their own union decisions or being in a different education sector, um, those who are on the side of the government and do not believe that that teachers need um, a pay rise in line with inflation, all sorts of all sorts of views can be had, and it is important uh, as we teach the kids to respectfully listen to all of them. So I do hope that uh, that you will engage with the news, that you will engage with what the strike actually means whether or not you are planning to um to strike yourselves this show is brought to you in partnership with john cat educational a leading publisher of books directories educational guides and magazines specifically aimed at forward-thinking schools in the uk and beyond have you checked out their latest releases? Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. This is Teachers Talk Radio. And this is Teachers Talk Radio News. Education Secretary Gillian Keegan has addressed school leaders at the Church of England National Education Conference. In a speech that recognised the achievements of Church of England schools and of teachers and leaders in schools across the country, she defined education as something that lets you do things you couldn't beforehand. She also reflected on her own experiences of being educated in a faith school, although it was a different denomination, Catholic. She spoke about the importance of a faith which is still a core part of who I am and recognised the work of faith schools, particularly Anglican schools, and the role they play in educating young people. She described the Church of England as one of my department's most valued partners, as the largest provider of academy trusts. Ms Keegan went on to say that her department would protect the schools so that when they became academies they retained the statutory freedoms and protections that apply to church schools. She also used the speech to comment on standards and said, I agree with the Prime Minister on maths to 18, and praised a former teacher of hers, Mr Ashcroft, who helped her realise my one opportunity. The speech was not without reference to planned industrial action by teachers in the National Education Union, 
when she commented that for teachers to have an impact, they need to be in school and stated that we will be funding schools in real terms at the highest level in history. The speech closed with a statement that her door is always open, but asked that you now work with me to keep as many children in schools as possible during the disruptive strike action. Ms Keegan ended with a focus on collaboration to make sure our education system flourishes for all children. Half of state schools in England and Wales will close on Wednesday as a result of the planned industrial action, according to reports in many media outlets. The action by NEU coincides with that being taken by civil servants, university staff and train drivers. While schools may close, many will remain open to pupils identified as vulnerable or at risk, as well as some schools offering places to the children of critical workers. The latest data from the Higher Education Statistics Agency shows that the number of EU students choosing to study in the UK has dropped by half since the UK left the EU. Enrolments by EU nationals dropped by 53%, from around 64,000 to 31,000 between 2020 and 2022. Whilst the number of non-EU nationals did increase at the same time period, the data shows that the UK universities still faced significant shortfalls. The exit from the EU and the changing international fee policy saw EU student fees rise from around £9,000 to as high as 38,000. The decline has been particularly sharp in student numbers from Italy, Germany and France. Similar falls have been seen in Scotland with many mourning the demise of the EU's Erasmus scheme, as well as the loss of diversity brought to courses by students from the EU. Universities UK said the changes in numbers had dented the finances of some universities and impoverished campus life. The HuffPost featured an article focusing on new data which shows that 87% of teenagers want better and more inclusive sex education. The survey by student discount app Student Beans found that 39% did not feel represented in the sex education they received. 27% of girls surveyed admitted they did not feel comfortable setting and communicating boundaries with a partner, compared to 23% of male respondents. 89% of all respondents said they did not see LGBTQIA themes in the teaching. With Generation Z having the highest percentage of non-straight people, almost double that of millennials, perhaps it's time for another review. Finally, Schools Week focuses on Ofsted's announcement on how it will conduct thematic reviews of alternative provision. Visits will take place in the spring and summer terms, with a national report out in the autumn. The visits will not result in judgments and the report will not identify local areas specifically, although they will be listed separately. There will be a focus on how AP supports children to stay in mainstream and full details are available on the Schools Week website. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, this week I'm going to talk about GDPR and acronyms.
acronym that has bounded around and caused quite a stir when it was first introduced back in 2018. GDPR stands for General Data Protection Regulation and it's governed by the ICO, which is the Information Controller's Office, an independent body set up by the government to uphold information rights. Ah, thanks Steve, that's crystal clear now, I hear you say. What does it mean to the general classroom teacher? Well, your school will have a policy, which you will have signed somewhere to say you've read it. If you haven't, it might be worth taking a look. In it, there'll be an outline of measures to protect data and usually a process of investigation in the event of a data breach. A data breach in a school is when personal data is compromised and a person can be identified, for example, first name and last name. In a school, Breaches can be as serious as the introduction of ransomware where data is locked by a cyber attack or as simple as the wrong letter being sent to the wrong carers. Now the question is how do we protect ourselves? First, if you're still wandering around with the USB pen hanging off your lanyard, make sure it's encrypted. There is lots of free encryption software around. If you can, migrate your data into the school's cloud. This puts the onus back on the school to keep the data safe. It's also backed up regularly. I know what you'll say next. If I'm in the cloud and the internet goes down, I can't get my planning. Yes, you're correct, but your school laptop will be encrypted, so you can save current files locally to enable working offline. If you have a machine with a small memory like a Chromebook, sync what you need and leave the rest in the cloud. With the top ads on a search for school data breach, all reading claim around £10,000 today. Obviously, no win, no fee. Do you want to cost your school that much money? I'll leave you with this. If you take a digital register and display it while you take it, could it be classed as a data breach. As always, I'd love to hear what you want to know about tech. Let us know at TT Radio Official. I'm Steve Woods, and that was Two Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. I always think Steve's two minute... I always think Steve's two minute tech is one of the, um, the highlights of my week because he does give me a lot to think about. Um, the whole idea of displaying the register and whether or not that is a data breach is an interesting one because the register in and of itself is nothing that anybody within that class, depending of course on how the register is displayed, it's nothing that anyone within that class does not already know. Um, let's say that Period five, I am taking my register. It's up on the board because I've forgotten to freeze my board or whatever it might be. What would be displayed from my school's um, uh, registration system would be the class list, which contains students' first names and family names. And I'm going to bet that 100% of the students in my class will know each other's first names and family names already. Um, and it's then going to display whether or not the student is present in my lesson, absent from my lesson, or arrives late. And once again, that's something that students will know by looking around the classroom. And we all know how much kids love to look around the classroom. So I personally do not think that if I'm displaying a register that is confined just to my lesson, that is necessarily a data breach. Um, I do wonder whether um, it might be considered a data breach if there are other periods displayed. So if, for example, your register displays periods one to five, uh, then perhaps that could be considered a data breach or maybe a privacy breach. 
um, if a student was absent period one for a doctor's appointment, for example, and that was noted by the, the lovely M symbol and they didn't want anybody to know, then yeah, perhaps that could be a breach if that were displayed. Um, Suburbage 11, you have texted in to say that you would like to join us to talk. Please do. You can call in. Um, I will add you as a speaker. And then just when I have done my little thoughts on, um, on the data protection, we can have a chat. That's absolutely fine. So, yeah, I think um, I do think it is important to. Hello. Hello, I'm just going to mute you for one second, just while I finish my thought, um, and then we will have a chat. Is that okay? Okay. Perfect. This is a bit from Bangladesh. Uh, uh, I would like to talk to you if you don't mind. If you have any, if you have any time to talk to me, please would you uh, give me some time to talk to me? Uh, yes, I will give you some time just in one minute. Okay. One minute. Okay, no problem. It's my pleasure. Oh, uh, I have. I in in fact, I am. I have a, um, a passion to be fluent in English. So I want to be uh, talk to you. Uh, I I want to talk to some uh, persons online uh, that is native speaker. Those who are native speaker, uh, so that I can improve my fluency and I can improve my English. As I'm not a native speaker, I'm from Bangladesh. Oh, perfect. Perfect. Uh, that is that is very cool. Um, as a linguist, I always think it is good to to practice your speaking. I have just muted you for one second so that I can finish what I was saying about data protection, um, and then I will I will unmute you and you can give me your thoughts on what we are talking about today. Um, so yeah, as I was saying, I do think it's important for us to consider student privacy when we are taking the register, um, if we are having that register displayed. And I think it is very important for us to consider why we might want to, uh, why we might want to hide our registers as we are taking them. Of course, depending on your school policy, it's not always necessary to take your electronic register immediately. Uh, it might be that you continue to take your register in your markbook if you do so. But again, we need to be mindful about whether uh, if the markbook goes missing, does is that then a data breach? Uh, so we've got to be very careful with what we're writing down these days um, and then transfer it electronically a little bit later. This is particularly useful if you are not able to freeze your screen um, because we found that my school has recently transferred to um, uh, Microsoft Surfaces as our go-to display model on our new screens uh, are not always easy to freeze and not all of the screens can freeze. So it's not always uh, possible for me to have my do now or my starter up on my board and then um, take my electronic register as well. So I might just note down my absences and, um, and then fill in my electronic register when we are done with that. Okay. Um, so, um, Suburb 11, I am going to bring you off mute now. Are you still there? Oh, yes, I'm here. I can Hello. hear you. Hello. Good. Hello. Good. <laughs> okay, my man, where are you from? Um, I am from Gloucester in England. Where are you? I'm from Bangladesh, just beside India. Have you ever heard the name of Bangladesh or India? Yes, yes. As as a British person, I am familiar with India because, of course, uh, India and Britain has a a long history 
Um, yeah, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm from and, Bangladesh. Bangladesh is also uh, 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 a part of England once upon a time. It was. It was. And can can I ask, why did you tune into the show today? Are you a teacher? I'm not a teacher. I'm a professional person. I'm a manager of a private firm. But I have a wish to do my uh, education in, in, uh, in abroad. So I am preparing myself to be fluent in English. So I'm talking uh, to you. You know, I am going to sit for the IELTS exam in the future. Oh, perfect. Perfect. And um, where in the English-speaking world are you planning on doing your higher education? Uh, in fact, uh, I'd like to do my MS and PhD uh, in, exp uh, in fact, developed countries like UK or any other European countries or US, UK, Australia, uh, Canada, etc., etc. Oh, fantastic! Because so, they provide because they provide world class degree. Absolutely, absolutely. I I feel like a, obviously as a teacher in the UK, I am biased, but I do feel like we um we do offer very good education in this country. Yeah, are you a teacher? I am. Yes. The oh, the, are you a university teacher or a school teacher? Uh, I'm a school teacher. Oh, okay. Congratulations. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. The show, I don't know if you noticed when you clicked, the show is called Teachers Talk Radio. And so the show is... Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I uh, noticed. Yeah, it's All designed... Already I have noticed. Yeah, it's designed for teachers um, to talk to other teachers about teaching around the world. Okay. In my career, I, I also... I, I was a teacher once upon a time because I had some lot of students, I taught them English, mathematics, science, etc, etc. During my university level, uh, during my university level and school level, I had a lot of students, those who are those who were my junior. Fantastic. So you were kind of a, a mentor to those people? Yes, I'm on a kind of a mentor. Yeah. And, and did you enjoy doing that? Yes, I definitely enjoy mentoring because mentoring uh, where anybody who, uh, who provide uh, the, uh, who provide their knowledge to any other uh, person, he also achieve knowledge from from them. The more you, the more the more you send your, the more you provide your knowledge, the more you gain your knowledge from other person. Definitely, definitely, I agree. Um, and you say that you are a professional Please. person. Yeah, you say that you are a professional person. Is there a lot of mentoring um, in your profession? Was that something you had to do a lot of? Sorry, I'm not clear. Would you please repeat? Yes. Did you um, did you have to mentor a lot of people in your career? Yeah, yeah, yeah. a lot of people. I have a lot of students. Excellent, excellent. And in um, in Bangladesh, is mentoring and teaching considered to be a very um, a, a noble thing to do, a good thing to do? Yeah, yes. Bangladesh is everybody respect teacher uh, because uh, teaching profession is a uh, 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 is a very vulnerable profession, respectable uh, profession, is a very generous profession. I think. So everybody, those who are teacher in our country, everybody respect them. Teaching profession is a very generous profession in our country. 
Oh, well, that's that's very good to hear. I'm very glad to hear that. Um, I don't know very much about education in, in Bangladesh. Could you maybe tell me a little bit about um, what it's like to go to school there? Uh, I, I, do you want to know the educational system of Bangladesh? Yes, please, if you don't mind. No, no, I, 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 it's my pleasure that you were, uh, want, you were asking me regarding this issue. Yes, Bangladesh was, despite Bangladesh is a, is a developing country, not developed country, but our educational system is very good. It's the different level in our education. First of all, whenever a person, whenever a child go to school, it's almost six years. Okay. And it's six Whenever a, whenever a child uh, turns to six, uh, he or she uh, have to go to school. It's, it's called primary level of school. Uh, it's from class one to class five. After passing class five, they, uh, they uh, promote it into a high school level. Uh, and it's uh, from class six to class 10. And there is a public examination in a uh, is called SSC, secondary school certificate, which, uh, which is held in class 10. Uh, and the third level is called intermediate level and it's called HSC, Higher Secondary Certificate School. Higher Secondary School Certificate, it's uh, 12 years of uh, 12 years class 11 and class 12. And after passing uh, uh, intermediate level, uh, anybody, uh, anybody of, uh, uh, of, our, of our country, any uh, students of our country uh, can choose uh, their uh, higher, higher education, I mean, uh, undergraduate level of study, either abroad or home, uh, uh, anywhere. And in our country, the uh, honors level, that is our BSc level, whatever you say, the, or, uh, that means uh, overall the undergraduate level is a four years course, uh, and the master's level is two years course, and the doctorate, is, is doctorate level is three years uh, courses. And this Fantastic. is the overall educational system in our country. That's that's really interesting. Thank you so much, um, because in in the UK, we start school when we are four. So I find it very interesting that that you start a little bit later when you're six. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, we start whenever when we, we are in uh, six, then we start our primary school level class one. It's called class one. That's that's excellent. And um, your your higher education system though the university system sounds very similar to ours in the uk so here yeah, yeah. you you would do maybe three or four levels for your undergraduate degree then one or yeah. two for your masters and then i'm about to start my phd uh next weekend and i'm expected to spend between four and seven years doing that thank you thank you um so that's then what's your subject man what's um, your subject so my my i'm a languages teacher my core subject is languages yes. but my my um doctorate will be in education okay education overall education uh yes so i'm going to research how we can use games to make teaching foreign languages more fun and whether that will help for vocabulary and grammar to um to, to stick better Okay, okay. There are now, uh, now, uh, now there are lots of uh, linguistics. Those who have, um, uh, those those who have a YouTube channel, they are providing their knowledge uh, without any cost. Uh, they are uh, helping uh, the people uh, from uh, non-native countries um, uh, so that they can improve English or any other languages. Absolutely, I think that that YouTube. Do you have any YouTube channel? 
Um, I, I live two by. <laughs> oh, that's very kind of you. Um, I don't have a YouTube channel, no, but maybe I should think about it. Oh, you're but you're like a podcaster. <laughs> well, I I try, I try. Okay. <laughs> uh, it's my pleasure that you have received my call. Uh, oh. But uh, in future, whenever I will, uh, uh, I will enter into your um, uh, 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 platform. Please uh, don't mind to uh, receive uh, my call. I am. I am always happy to talk to you. If you've got interesting things to say about our topic, I will always receive your call. Thank you so much for calling in. Okay. Take care. Thank you. You too. Have a great weekend. Thank you. Thank you. Bye bye. Well, thank you very much, um, Suburbs Eleven. That was really interesting to talk to you. Like I said, I don't know very much about um, about Bangladesh as a country. It's not something that that came up very often in my my geography classes at school or in my language classes. Um, you know, being somebody who focuses on um, on European and Oriental Asian languages, um, kind of India and that side of Asia is is not something I've really spent a lot of time thinking about. So I was really interested to learn from you. Thank you. During that conversation, we had a couple of other texts come in. Sue has texted in um, from East Sussex. Good morning, Sue. I am glad to have heard from you today. Um, and Tom has texted in. Tom enjoyed that conversation. I am glad. I am glad. I always think it's it's interesting to hear from our listeners around the world, to hear about different education systems. Um, because of course, I, I understand that not everybody listening in is a teacher. Um, but I am always glad to hear from those who are not teachers um, to hear about what education is like in their country. It's uh, it's always, always good for me, always interesting for me. OK, I would like to kind of get into the meat of today's show and talk about Lunar New Year. Uh, now, many people listening might think that it's a bit strange. Um, that I'm talking about Lunar New Year now on the 28th of January, because we all know that Chinese New Year was last Sunday. In in England, certainly, it was um, advertised, in, in my opinion, more than ever before, and I loved to see it. I, in fact, if, if you follow me on Twitter, that's at Mr. D. Lester, uh, all one word, M-R-D-L-E-S-T-E-R, you will have noticed that I tweeted at channel four which is one of the the main channels here in england i i don't engage with um with media companies with celebrities on twitter very often i like to keep those boundaries the uh, the parasocial relationships of social media is still something that i find a bit strange um but i saw an an ident from channel four celebrating lunar new year uh when i was watching the simpsons last last saturday uh sunday and I just loved the fact that it was being celebrated because we do have huge proportions of Chinese uh, Chinese immigrants here in the UK and our Asian population in the UK in general is, is very, very large. I'm just actually 
looking up now so that I can be um, so that I can be accurate. But Google isn't giving me a, an easy to find number, which is fine. But we do have a lot of um, Asian communities here in Britain. And so I loved the fact that we were we were celebrating Lunar New Year on one of the big channels. Of course, the reason that I was absent um, from the show last week and the previous week, uh, I know that you all missed me ever so much. Um, it was because I was actually at school last Saturday morning and the previous Saturday morning working with our year seven students. Uh, like I said before, I work in an independent school. And uh, in my setting, our kids from year six through to year 11 actually have Saturday morning lessons. Um, for our students in year six, seven and eight, their Saturday mornings form a discovery program. And so departments will take it in turns to lead the Saturday mornings for each year group and do different things related to their subjects. And so in MFL, we decided that we were going to look at Lunar New Year. So I took the lead on that alongside Marie, my lovely head of department, who did all of the organising. She's brilliant at that sort of thing. Um, I took the lead on language and religion. So I did one morning where I taught the year sevens Mandarin. And then I did the following morning where we looked at the mythology of the race, which I will talk to you a bit about a little bit later on. And some of the other Chinese religious elements that come in. And our students also did sessions on meditation and Chinese medicine. Uh, they did a session on Chinese philosophy. They did a session on Chinese art with our head of art. And probably the most enjoyable for them was the Chinese food tasting session that they did with our amazing catering department. So, you know, we, we put on what I think was a very successful celebration. Um, and so it has been it has been fantastic to see it celebrated, to see Lunar New Year celebrated last week. Then I kind of noticed that after last weekend, everything disappeared. Um, all of the shops stopped doing their promotions. The, the TV adverts that had been running stopped. It was as if Lunar New Year had finished after last Saturday. And while I understand that that is kind of the the understanding of lots of people, that's not actually how it works because Lunar New Year is a 15-day festival. We are in fact still in the middle of it right now. We are in fact in the middle of it right now. Um, it starts always on the sighting of the new moon that occurs between January and February. So it's kind of, for those of you who are Muslim or understand how Islam works, it's kind of how um, Ramadan is decided by the sighting of the moon. So that means that Lunar New Year can happen any time between January the 21st, that's the earliest that it can be, and February the 20th, that's the latest that it can be. The, the day that we tend to call Chinese New Year or Lunar New Year, because of course it's not just celebrated in China, um, is the Spring Festival. So that is a festival in its own right. And then the New Year celebrations carry on for the next two weeks. So like I said, we are kind of in the middle of them right now. 
It's referred to as Spring Festival in the mainland, as I've said, and actually it's one of several Lunar New Years that happen across Asia. Okay, so it isn't just China that celebrates this New Year. In fact, almost all Asian countries, apart from Japan, will celebrate New Year in this two-week period. Um, Japan takes New Year on January the 1st. They do have what's called Little New Year or Old New Year happening now. So there is a minor celebration in Japan um, that has happened over the last week. But generally, Japan celebrates New Year on January the 1st, and we now are looking to the rest of Asia to celebrate New Year over these next two weeks. It is, of course, the biggest holiday in Greater China. Um, and that is something that's very, very important for those of us with Chinese students in our schools to um, to take on board. The fact is, our Chinese students are still celebrating what is their equivalent of Christmas in England. It's it's that big. It's that important. That's one of the reasons why at my school we have chosen to market with our year sevens. We've chosen to teach our year sevens about it because we do have a large Chinese population at my school. We feel that it's important for our non-Chinese students to understand the impact, to understand the importance, and for our Chinese students to feel that they are being recognised, that they are being celebrated. Because as a, a Christmas guy, I am one of those people who has, I like Christmas as a personality trait, um, like probably about 50% of the British population. Um, I, I often think about how privileged I am that my biggest celebration of the year is just by happenstance of mine being a culturally Christian country, a holiday for me. So I know that I will never need to go to work on Christmas. I might go to work on my birthday. Uh, I might go to work on Halloween, but I know that I will never work on Christmas. And that is a privilege that I have that my Jewish colleagues don't even always have for their Sabbath. The number of Jewish teachers that I have worked with who have just accepted that they may need to work over Shabbat and have spoken to their rabbis in order to make peace with that. Um, the number of, of Muslim students that I have taught who have come into school while continuing to choose to fast for Ramadan and are not able to take that time off. Again, particularly in England, where quite often exams will happen during Ramadan. So there is a privilege that I recognise that I have. And I put myself in a position a couple of years ago where I thought, how would I feel if I were expected to go to school over the Christmas period? You know, this year, going to school up until the 16th of December felt like a, a wrench. How would I feel if I were in school on the 24th, on the 25th, on the 26th? Um, and I realised how disconnected that would make me feel from everything that, that, that feels special. And I realised how it would almost take away the thing that I look forward to. The rest, the relaxation, the time with my family, the break. And that really allowed me to put myself in my Chinese students' positions, because that's exactly what they're doing. Coming into school over their new year, 
they are doing the equivalent of my going into school over Christmas. So I think it is important for us to be mindful of that. Of course, a lot of the students, students that I've talked to, you know, I've been very sympathetic towards them. I was like, well, how are you feeling about being in school over New Year? And they've all said, oh, well, you know, we're, we're sad, of course, but we're away from our families. Um, I teach in a, a boarding school, so most of our Chinese students, not all, but most are boarders. So they said, you know, we're away from our families. So actually, maybe it's good that we're in school because it keeps us occupied. It keeps us from missing our families at this time of year. And I thought that was a very mature response of them. Um, but yeah, I, I have felt this year, especially more than ever, it's very, very important for us to recognize the other cultures and, and to celebrate New Year. And that ties in with what we heard in the news about how we do have falling international student numbers um, as a result of Brexit, you know, as a result of it being more difficult to get the visas now. No, I'm sorry, I misspoke. It's not more difficult. It's a lengthier process to get the visas now to study in the UK. And lots of families, lots of, of children are thinking, is it actually worth the effort? particularly when there are many other native English-speaking countries that they can go to if, um, like like Savage 11 wanted, if they want to practice their English. Those who are still in the EU, so potential students from France, from Germany, from Spain, from Italy, they can still very easily get into parts of Ireland, which are still members of the EU. So, of course, they are going to bypass England, Scotland, Wales entirely because they don't need that extra layer of visas. And so I think if we want to encourage students to come, and even if purely on a fiscal basis, we are trying to get international students in because that will help with our fees, both in the independent and the state sectors, because both sectors are funded based on how many students they have, then us being shown to be compassionate towards our students' cultures, to be mindful of them, and, and not just to acknowledge them, but to actively celebrate them, to actually make them part of our school, I think that's that's really important. That's a very important marketing strategy that, uh, that all of our admissions departments really ought to be looking at. Anyway, um, our students are in school over their new year, which, as I've said, is still going on. It is, like I said, the, the reason I went on my little tangent there, it is the major holiday in Greater Mainland China. And the Chinese celebrations have influenced those across um, across China's neighbours. So Korean New Year, Vietnamese Tet, uh, Tibet's Losa. Uh, I apologize to any Tibetan listeners for my mispronunciation of your New Year's festival. Um, they they have all been influenced by how China celebrates. And I think that's probably why in English we're quite lazy and we call it Chinese New Year, um, even though technically it's not. Although, to be fair, Lunar New Year is also a misnomer um, because China doesn't operate on a purely lunar calendar. Um, Lunar New Year, Chinese New Year, is in fact determined by a, a lunar solar calendar, um, which is very different to when New Year is celebrated just by a lunar calendar. So actually, in English, it is very difficult to get the terminology uh, to get the terminology correct. 
Chinese New Year is a tradition that dates back very literally thousands of years. Um, that's one of the things that I love about Chinese. For those of you who don't know, uh, for those of you who are new to the show, I teach Chinese as one of my subjects. Um, I'm a classics and MFL teacher. Uh, Chinese is one of the languages that I teach to A-level. Um, so I do have a particular interest in this. Um, Chinese New Year actually started not in January, February, when we have it now, uh, but it was originally in the mid-autumn festival. So in the same way, those of you who listened to my Halloween show, we talked about how the the pagan people of the British Isles used to celebrate Halloween as their New Year. Um, it was very similar in China. In fact, there is, if you go back a thousand or so years, there is a very common thread throughout humanity that New Year starts with the harvest in the autumn. There is a common thread that the day starts at sundown, and we still see that in modern Judaism. Uh, There's this common idea that the ending is the beginning, Uh, and and I think there's something really quite lovely about that. But yeah, Chinese New Year was traditionally the mid-autumn festival, and that was the point where Chinese families would gather together and worship the moon deities. Uh, there was a, a a poem written by an, anom- an, 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 an anonymous farmer, that was really hard to say, um, in the classic of poetry, and it describes how people um, clean up their harvest sites. Uh, they have guests gather and they toast them with a special drink. Um, they sacrifice lambs and they cooked and ate the meat. Um, they would visit the homes of their masters, because of course this was a a farmer's celebration, harvest was a farmer's celebration, instead of a landowner's celebration. Uh, So they would go to their master, they would toast their master, uh, and they would make wishes for a a long life. And that happened in the 10th month of the calendar, which of course was the autumn. that then carried on, and and the the history kind of gets lost, but it evolved into what is now the Chinese New Year celebration, which is traced back, in fact, to the Warring States period. Um, now, of course, I'm a linguist rather than a historian, uh, but I believe the Warring States period was 475 BC until about 221 AD. Um, but anybody who is more knowledgeable about Chinese history than I am, um, please do feel free to correct me on that one. Um, and and we see the we see writers uh, in the book Ximin Yue Ling um, record this celebration, and they say um, I've got it here in Chinese, so I'm kind of translating as I go. Uh, the starting day of the first month. Um, is called Shengri. Uh, I take my wife and my children, we worship the ancestors and we remember my father. Uh, and then he goes on to write um, children and wives and grandchildren and great grandchildren all serve wine to their parents, they make a toast and they wish for good health of their parents. So it's very much a remembering where we come from 
remembering the old, remembering that the ending is in fact the beginning. You know, we wouldn't be here were it not for our parents who have already lived through these new years before. Uh, at some point, people then also started visiting the homes of acquaintances to wish each other a happy new year. So we have got the kind of um, the, the, the wassailing element here. Um, again, if you listen to my show on winter traditions, we talked a lot about wassailing and, and where that came from and the idea that you would go around and you would visit people and they would serve you um, spiced wine and you would toast to health. And this is one of the things that I love as a linguist. Um, as somebody interested in the classics in humanities, I love the fact that these same ideas, these same traditions crop up in apparently disparate cultures. You know, this was a point where China was still closed to the West and it would be for a very long time yet. So there is no actual um, reason why a tradition that existed in, in Gloucestershire, in the south of England, where I'm based, should be mimicked in mainland China, but it was. And so to me, this suggests a commonality of humanity. You know, there is an, an extent to which we are all the same deep down. We all want these same connections. We all want these same celebrations. And, and I find it fascinating that they all kind of take the very same forms of visiting neighbours, toasting to their health, being grateful for where you have come from, being grateful for your ancestors. Um, and they're all seeming to take part at the same time. Um, I have theories that I'm not going to bore you with right now, um, but just, just know that I think it's fascinating. And if you even have a passing interest in the classics or in the humanities or in language or in linguistics, do look into these connections, because I can almost guarantee that you will find something um, that, that relates to what you are particularly interested in. Um, in volume 27 of the book of Later Han, um, there's a story of an officer who goes to his prefect's house um, along with a government secretary and they toast to the prefect and they praise how great the prefect is. So, of course, there is a lot here of, um, you know, praising your superiors. And you do kind of have to wonder how much of this was was engineered by the superiors, by the prefects, by the landowners, uh, just in order to get what they felt was due to them. But in a feudal society, in a very hierarchical society, like China was at this time, like all societies were around this time, to be fair, um, it's, it's quite understandable that people would do this because it was built into their culture um, that your, um, your professional superiors were also your, finan <coughs> excuse me, your financial superiors, your moral superiors. So the traditions continued to evolve. They continued to change until they are what they are today. In 1928, however, the Kuomintang party decided that Chinese New Year needed to move and it would be moved to the 1st of January to follow the Gregorian calendar. 
Now, the 1920s is a fascinating period of Chinese history. Um, it's it's the period of Chinese history that I know the most about. Um, having taught Lu Shun at A level, um, he was writing. He is one of China's great writers. Um, he was writing during this period, and it was a time of massive change in Chinese culture, as China was trying to learn from the West, and as it was trying to. Uh, pull itself out of the poverty that had existed in the country up until that point. It was adopting a lot of these Western ideals. So in 1928, um, Lunar New Year was abandoned and New Year was moved to the 1st of January. However, the public opposed this massively. In kind of an inverse, I suppose, of what have been the Chinese New Year celebrations up until that point, where in China you you celebrated the people who were in charge of you, the the common people said, no, actually, we like our New Year, we like our traditions, and so we are going to keep them. So the moving of New Year to the 1st of January didn't last very long. It stuck in Japan, um, but it didn't in China. And... New Year was then celebrated, as it always was, up until 1967. So this is now during the Cultural Revolution, when New Year celebrations were banned completely. Um, the State Council of the People's Republic of China made the announcement that people should change customs. So at this point, it was generally believed that China trying to stick to the old traditions, the old customs, the old religion were a part of the reason why it was struggling to pull itself out of poverty. Um, the government essentially put forward the belief that China's adherence to the old ways was going to keep it stuck in the past. And so in 1967, they decided that they would ban the celebration of the old New Year festival. Um, and that they should revolutionize the spring festival as it was. And so that happened for quite a long time where spring festival so as we celebrated as we saw celebrated last saturday that was celebrated as as a um a festival but there was no break from work people still worked on new year's eve people still went into work on spring festival day by the time of the chinese economic reform however public celebrations were reinstated and i think that's one of the reasons i don't know i'm not a i'm not a sociologist i'm not a psychologist but i think that's probably one of the reasons why it has such a big um cultural impact now um i think people feel like it was fought for people feel like they've they've earned it back and so they they really do like to to go to town at this time the ancestor worship, the deity worship, has died out now among most Chinese people, not among everybody. There are still lots of Chinese people who follow the old religion. Um, but that has kind of disappeared in, in modern Chinese traditions. And it is now more about spending time with the living family. So Chinese families will quite often gather together on New Year's Eve 
and they will have a big what's called the reunion celebration where the whole family will get together for a big meal and they will meet and they will celebrate being a family and at that point traditionally chinese families would stay together and would only see each other for the first five days of the new year celebration so traditionally from last saturday through wednesday chinese families would not see anybody other than the family it would be a big time to get together to to celebrate who they were and just to catch up you know because again it movement across china was very common um even back as into the 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 60s the 50s the 40s people were moving for economic growth and so families would not see each other perhaps all year while they worked and so it was a good time for everybody to get together and and to catch up it was also a good time for cleaning if you've got everybody under the same roof they can clean the whole house and as the idiom goes many hands make light work so it was very um popular time to get the whole family together to clean the house and again traditionally people were living in hutongs so they were living in kind of family complexes where you had maybe four or five buildings uh in a or surrounding a courtyard and each building was occupied by a subset of the same family so maybe you had the parents in one building you had um eldest son and his wife in another building grandparents were in another building youngest daughter and her husband were in another building altogether so they would stay together and they would clean um and that was justified of course as getting rid of the the dirt getting rid of the grind getting rid of the bad luck from the old old year and bringing in the 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 good luck for the new year although you do have to wonder whether it was just a an excuse, an opportunity to get people to um, to clean house. So that's kind of the the history of the celebration up until today. So it's huge. It is huge. Chinese people fought for it. They fought to have it, you know, and in the same way, uh, whenever elections come round, people remind us, you know, make sure you vote because people fought for your right to vote. People fought for Chinese people's right to have a New Year celebration. And so you can understand why it is important to take that on board. This show is brought to you in partnership with John Katz Educational, a leading publisher of books, directories, educational guides and magazines specifically aimed at forward-thinking schools in the UK and beyond. Have you checked out their latest releases? Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. So how can we bring these celebrations into a school context, you might ask. Um, and that is a, that's a big question. That's a big question, particularly these days, as we look at cultural appropriation and we consider what is and is not appropriate for us to do in schools as teachers, thinking about what can we do to make sure that we are being inclusive and not offensive 
And I think for me, the biggest thing is looking at what the traditions are, looking at why those traditions exist, and just educating our children about them. Just making sure that they are aware of what their Chinese peers will be doing. So I'm just going to kind of run you through a few activities that I've done over the past couple of weeks. Um, again, understanding that I am a language specialist and I do speak Chinese, so some of these activities will be more relevant to other Chinese teachers than to everybody. But hopefully, regardless of your discipline, um, regardless of your age range, you might be able to take something out of the few activities that I have prepared for us to um, to discuss today. The first thing that we can all do, uh, and I think most schools already do this, is make sure children know the mythology behind the new year. There are all sorts of stories about Lunar New Year, um, about why the calendar is as it is. And the most famous one of those is The Great Race. There is a wonderful TED Ed video that I share with my students about it that I will tweet a link to a little bit later on today. So if you're interested, um, please do look that up. But in case you don't know, the, the story goes that the Jade Emperor, who was kind of the, the, the main deity of the ancient Chinese religion, he needed a way to split up time. He realized that he hadn't created time um, and things were just kind of flowing. And he wanted a way to, um, to, to, to demarcate the years. So he organized a race between the animals and he decreed that whoever came first in the race would have the first year named after them. Then whoever came second would have the second year named after them, etc., etc. Uh, and so the race was held. All of the animals took part, but only 12 would succeed. And those are the 12 animals after whom the cycle of the year is named. The rat came in first. He was in the lead right up until the animals got to the river. And the rat realized that if he attempted to cross the river, he would drown. He was only in first place because he got up first on the morning of the race, so he had himself a bit of a head start. Uh, luckily for him, so did the ox. The ox reached the river while the rat was standing on the banks trying to figure out how to cross. And the, the ox, being, um, being very kind, offered to help the rat across. And so the rat jumped up onto the ox's ear and the ox crossed to the river. And as soon as they got onto the bank, the rat jumped down and used his superior speed to cross the finish line first. So rat came first, ox came second. Um, I'm an ox, 
personally. So I'm very sympathetic to um, to that part of the story. Tiger and Rabbit came in third and fourth, respectively, um, because they were fast and they were competitive. Tiger beat Rabbit because Tiger was also able to cross the river under his own power. Um, Rabbit had to hop across stepping stones and onto a floating log to get there. So he was held back slightly by his um, inability to do it himself and by his inability to ask Tiger for help, by his decision not to ask Tiger for help. So that's quite an interesting duology, I feel. You can you can contrast rat and ox with rabbit and tiger. And you can you can talk to children, uh, particularly young children, about how rat was right to ask for help, but should he maybe have let ox cross the finish line first as a thank you for helping? Or was it okay for him to ask for help and then still make uh, take advantage? of his own speed. Whereas Rabbit and Tiger were able to do things on their own, not quite as quickly as, as, as Rat was, but they were able to. But it was Rabbit's inability to ask for help and his kind of stubbornness in getting across on his own that, that kept him from third position. Uh, things didn't work out all badly for Rabbit though, because Rabbits are considered the luckiest of the signs. In fifth was the dragon, uh, who is some, sometimes called the beautiful dragon or the good-looking dragon uh, that all of my dragon students like. Uh, they quite enjoy that little tidbit about themselves. Um, he was immediately noticed by Jade Emperor, and Jade Emperor was willing to bend the rules slightly and let Dragon's son come in sixth place. But Dragon's son didn't wake up in time to be part of the race at all. So Snake came and said, oh, I, I would like to, to be part of the race, please. And Dragon was the snake's adoptive father. And so Snake came in sixth. So if you're a snake, you are there because you um, were able to take advantage of your adoptive families, your wider family, your found family. Um, and if you are not, and, and you are not Baby Dragon, uh, because Baby Dragon chose to stay in bed. Horse and Goat came in next, but Horse and Goat were both too kind and too modest and they argued over who would be able to cross the finish line first between the two of them. Uh, they spent so much time arguing over that, that um, Dragon and Snake were able to cross before them, which is why Horse and Goat come in at 7th and 8th, respectively. In some versions of the story, Jade Emperor intervenes, and he, um, he decides who is going to be 7th and 8th because horse and goat can't decide between them. In some versions of the story, goat is a sheep, and so you might see that. Monkey had fallen far, far, far behind. Uh, but he managed to hop in between trees and stones, and so that's how he caught up to be ninth. Then came Rooster, who also had trouble getting across the river. Then came Dog, 
who was having far too much fun playing in the river, uh, he lost track of time and so crossed in 11th place. Then finally came Pig. Pig, bless him, came in last because he overslept and on his way there he had a nap and by the time he got across the river he was very very hungry so he stopped to have a snack. But what I think is important because it's very easy to to read that story as a a warning against sloth and gluttony but actually Pig came in. Pig still crossed the finish line. He was number 12 out of all of the animals. So it's not always a story about denying your nature. You know, if you are the kind of person that likes to stay in bed late, if you are the, the type of person that likes to stop halfway through an activity and have a snack, you can still succeed. This is not um, an indictment of that. Now, one of the animals that is missing from the Chinese version of the story is cat. Cat actually does pop up in the Vietnamese version of the story. Cat takes rabbit's place. So in Vietnam, we are now in the year of the cat instead of the year of the rabbit. But you might notice that cat doesn't make an appearance in the Chinese version of the story. And interestingly, this is one that children always seem to notice. Even children who have never heard the story before will always ask me, well, what about cat? And I think it's because dog's there. And I think children in general see cat and dog as being a bit of a pair. And so they come to the logical conclusion of, if there is a dog, there ought to be a cat. But I always get the question, oh, well, what happened to cat? Now, in the Chinese version of the story, in one of the Chinese versions of the story, cat and rat were neighbours. Um, but cat was a bit of a bully. And he always bullied rat. They were neighbours who did not get on well. Rat was very angry about this, but he was too afraid to say anything because he knew that Cat was bigger than him, he was stronger than him, um, and he, he worried about the reprisals. So now if you're a CPSHE teacher, we have got a link to, to bullying via this story. You can use this story to explore what bullying behaviour is. Rat eventually had enough of what Cat was doing to him and decided that he wanted to get revenge. When he heard Jade Emperor's decision to hold the race, he thought, okay, this is it. This is my opportunity to get my revenge on Cat. Now, Cat was a bit lazy. He was a bit sleepy, kind of like Pig, really. So one day Cat came over to Rat's house, he kicked the door open and he ordered rats to keep him informed of when the emperor's race was going to be. He said, you know, let's travel together. You and I will team up. We'll make sure that we win. And Rat promised that he would do that. But of course, as we learned from the episode between Rat and Ox, Rat was very sly. And so despite promising that he would tell Cat when he was going to go to the party, on the morning of the party, he woke up early which is why he got to the river first. He left and he didn't tell Cat where he was going. So Cat didn't wake up until the race was over. And so he wasn't able to make it into the cycle. But unfortunately, as all good fairy tales tell us, revenge just makes matters worse. 
And so from that day, Cat decreed that he would always hate rats and that their enmity would grow even more than it had been up until that point. So at that point, rats scatter all across the earth every time a cat appears because they're afraid of what the cat will do to get revenge. There is an alternative version of the story where Rat made good on his promise and he did take Cat to the, the river with him and they got as far as the river and Ox came along and Rat jumped onto Ox's ear, Cat jumped onto Ox's back, Ox pulled them across the river um, and it was all going swimmingly, if you'll forgive the awful pun. But then when they were halfway across the river, the currents got quite bad and Ox was doing his very, very best to cross. And that was when Rat saw his opportunity. So he jumped down from Ox's ear onto Ox's back, pushed Rat, uh, pushed Cat, sorry, into the water and Cat was washed away and drowned. So that was how uh, that was how Rat got his revenge in that slightly more gruesome version of the story. But The Great Races is a, is a good one. It's a story that children understand. You know, they get racing. They understand the idea of coming in first, coming second, coming third. So even as far down as nursery, I've taught that story when I've done Chinese with nursery age children. And, and they get it. They, they know what it means. And of course, as I said, you can then use it further up schools to explore bullying, uh, to explore using your natural talents, to explore teamwork. And then again, as you go further up the school, you can use it to explore mythology. Because when I asked my students last week what a myth was, they overwhelmingly told me that it was a story that wasn't true. And that it was a story that people used to believe. Uh, and it was that used to that I found quite interesting. Because I did point out to them that actually lots of Chinese people still follow the old Chinese religion. Lots of Chinese people do believe that this happened. And so it's a good way to challenge their conceptions on what mythology is. And to make them aware of the fact that when they've learned about Greek mythology, when they've learned about... Um, viking religion during their history work there are still people who um who practice these religions uh they are not dead they are not gone another thing that is quite nice to do are the red packets so the red packets are a very famous part of chinese new year in case you are not familiar with the tradition um red packets are given to children usually under the age of 18 and they contain money. So it's just a red envelope with usually quite a lot of money inside. And that's the big gift giving celebration in Chinese culture. So it's the big time again. It's where the parallels with, with Christmas in English culture come in. It's the big time that children will get presents. Um, Chinese children really look forward to getting their red envelope money. Uh, and I love it when I speak to my, uh, my Chinese six formers my year uh my year 12s my year 13s who are you know they're 16 17 18 years old um and i ask them what they're looking forward to and, you know they say oh 
I'm excited to have some food. I'm excited to to, to talk to my family on on Zoom on Skype. Um, but my mum has got me my red packet, and they light up when they talk about it. And there was one year that I felt very sad for one of my year thirteens. Um, he was a little bit older. He'd turned nineteen. Uh, and it was going to be his first new year where he wasn't getting a red packet. And he he was very visibly crestfallen as the others in the class would talk about how excited they were to get theirs and, and how it was probably going to be their last. Um, it kind of struck him how sad it was that he wasn't going to get his anymore. So it's just it's a, it's a red envelope with some money in. And quite often Chinese children will get money from every adult in their life so from parents from grandparents from uncles from aunties um and they will they are free to do with that money whatever they want quite often parents will encourage them to put it into the bank to save it but they are free to to spend it to to buy toys and games whatever it is they may want um and i do red packets with my children um obviously not actual money but I, I buy red packets in. They're quite easy to get. Authentic red packets are quite easy to get. Um, if you don't mind shopping on Amazon, you can just go onto Amazon. You can type red, uh, red envelopes, Chinese New Year in, and you're able to get them in quite cheaply. Um, Asian supermarkets sell them. Um, you can get them in all sorts of places. And then over Christmas, I like to, or just after Christmas when they go on sale, I like to buy chocolate coins um, and I put those in. And I will give children in my classes um, a red packet with a couple of chocolate coins in. And I did this once again for a sixth form class um, of native Chinese students, thinking that they would find it funny, thinking that they would maybe find it a bit, bit cringy that their English Chinese teacher is giving them a red packet. But they loved it. They, they were so happy with these bits of chocolate um, because I had recognised the culture because uh, I recognised that this was something exciting to them. So red packets are something that is very easy to do. And I spoke to the my kids afterwards, and I asked them whether they felt it was culturally appropriative of me to give out the red packets. And we had a very interesting conversation on cultural appropriation and what it meant. And they came to the conclusion that it wasn't because I had done it as a celebration of their culture, because it's not a closed culture, it's not a, they, they don't feel that it is protected and they like to share their celebrations. Uh, they were quite touched that I had thought of going to those lengths in order to celebrate with them. So obviously my kids don't speak for all Chinese people, and if cultural appropriation is something that you as a teacher are particularly concerned about, it might be a good idea to talk to Chinese students in your learning community, talk to Chinese parents that you have or, or Chinese people that you know, and just get their feel for it. But uh, know that if you want to give out red packets, if you want to do chocolate coins, um, it gets the OK from my students at least. And it's a fun thing to do. The other thing that I like to do is encourage the staff at my school to wear red as much as possible over the two week period. So I wore my red shirt um, all of last week. I will wear my red tie this coming week um, because it's these little touches 
that are important. And it's these little touches that embed cultural celebration into the curriculum. So it's not an SMSC, let's tick an Ofsted box and show that we have celebrated Chinese New Year once with an assembly and a display. But it's living what we say we do and actually embedding social, moral, spiritual and cultural education into our curricula. Now, the reason that um, that Chinese people wear red goes back to also why they celebrate with fireworks and firecrackers. So I'm going to tell you another story now, the story of the Nian. Now, Nian is also the Mandarin word for New Year, N-I-A-N in Pinyin. That's how you spell it. And it's pronounced Nian. And Nian was a creature that lived in a cave. In some versions of the story, it's a dragon-type creature. In some versions of the story, it is a lion-type creature. It, it's hard to get a, a handle on what Nian actually was. We just know that it was vicious, and it liked eating humans. And every year at Spring Festival, it would venture out of its cave, and it would go down to the village, and it would feast and it would eat as many people as possible. One day, however, the remaining villagers, the ones who had not been eaten, met, and they, they were trying to figure out what to do to get rid of Nian, to keep it away, so that they wouldn't suffer that same fate. And as they looked around each other, they realised that they had something in common. You see, they were all musicians. They liked to play instruments. They also were all wearing red garments of clothing. And they had a theory. They had a theory that their instruments kept the Nian away from them, and that perhaps the Nian was scared of the colour red. And so that kept it away from them as well. And over the next two years, they tested that theory. So one year, they all wore red clothing. And they realised that yes, the Nian was scared of the colour red. So now, if you wear red clothing over New Year, you will make sure, you will guarantee that you won't get eaten. I have scientific evidence of this, because I wear red over Chinese New Year, and I have never yet been eaten by Nian. Okay, proof that it's true. Science teachers don't like it when I tell my kids that that's proof that it's true, um, but the kids quite like it. The next year, they didn't wear red. They took a risk, but they played their instruments. Most of them were drummers, and they played their drums, and they realised that the Nian was scared of loud noises. And so the following year, they played their drums, and they wore their red, but they were getting quite tired as the evening went on, and as the two weeks went on, you know, playing your drums every day for a two-week period to try and keep this monster away from you was exhausting. So what they decided to do was to create artificial noise in order to keep the Nian away. So they invented firecrackers, and they realised that the noise of the firecracker, like the noise of the drum, kept the beast at bay. And so that is also why we set off fireworks over New Year, to keep the Nian from coming down and eating you. So just little touches, wearing a red tie, 
wearing a red headband. Uh, red socks, encouraging your students to wear red. We had a non-uniform day actually yesterday and I encouraged as many of our students to wear red as possible. Uh, and they responded really well to that. The first year that I sent a whole staff email and explained the story and I said, you know, could we maybe for Chinese New Year attempt to wear red on this one day? It went unnoticed by most of the kids. Um, but I had an email from a sixth form tutor who had had one of their Chinese duties sidle up to them and say, Miss, why is everybody wearing red today? Is it because it's Chinese New Year? And so it was noticed by the Chinese kids. And again, it's these little things that are not all about the, the, the pomp and ceremony. We don't do them to get noticed. We don't do them because we've got the inspectors coming in and we want to tick that box for SMSC. We do them because the children notice. And we do them because it makes the children feel special. It makes the children feel accepted. It makes the children feel valued. So what can you do with the Nyen story other than wear red? If your parents' association are up for it, you could hold a fireworks display. I know lots of schools still do around bonfire nights. But if you are a school and you compete with neighbouring schools for a bonfire night fireworks display, why not move it to coincide with Chinese New Year instead and have that as a way of celebrating? If you are an art teacher or a primary teacher, you can get your children to draw, to paint, to depict the Nian. You can look at different artistic depictions of it throughout Chinese artistic history see different ways that it's depicted, and then get your children to um, to design their own. So because it's so difficult, because we don't have a written description of what it actually looked like, they can let their imaginations run free. You can bring in a dragon dance. Um, if you are one of my pupils, I need you to cover your ears now because you don't know this, but we're having a dragon dance coming into school next Saturday. Um, I'm really sad that I won't be there to see it. Because, uh, like I said, when I was chatting to our caller earlier, I'm in Reading next weekend for my first doctoral weekend. Um, but we have the dragon dance coming in. The dragon dance is all about scaring the Nyen away, making those, those big noises, having those bright colours. And there are troops all over the UK who are very happy to come in and, and dance for your students. So maybe look at bringing some of those people in. There are all sorts of ways that we can celebrate Chinese New Year, that we can celebrate New Year, Lunar New Year. So again, if you have Korean students, if you have Vietnamese students, if you have Thai students, talk to them. Try and use the phrasing Lunar New Year rather than Chinese New Year as much as possible, because even though Lunar New Year is still technically not correct, it is more inclusive of Asian culture in general than the term Chinese New Year is. Of course, if your school's Asian population is exclusively Chinese students, and you are focusing on, on China as the place of celebration, then absolutely Chinese New Year is the right thing to do. But if you're looking at Asia in general, then, then call it Lunar New Year to be that little bit more inclusive. And remember that it's not just about the one day, it's not just Spring Festival. 
we're a week into a two-week celebration. So there is still lots of things that you can do. There is still lots of fun things that you can do in order to celebrate with your students. And that is it for us today. I do hope that you are able to take something away from what we've talked about today. Um, I hope you found our discussion of the Bangladeshi school system interesting. I did. I learned a lot from that conversation. That was great. Um, I hope that maybe I've given you some ideas of things that you can do in your setting, in your subject to, to celebrate New uh, Lunar New Year. And hopefully I've given you the confidence so that if any of your colleagues come up to you and say, why are you still doing Chinese New Year? That was last week. You can turn around and say, actually, no because it's a two-week celebration, and I believe in being completely inclusive of my students. I am the only show that we have on the network today, um, although I noticed I'm very excited because we do have a jam-packed day tomorrow, that's Sunday the 29th of January, we've got a lot of shows happening tomorrow, uh, but I am our only show today, so if you are craving more Teacher Talk radio on your Saturday afternoon, please do go back through the archives um, in order to um, to listen to all of the great back shows that we have. Uh, because I'm at university next weekend, I will not be joining you for breakfast next Saturday. Um, I know that that means in January I will have done all of one show, uh, and believe me, that that pains me uh, much, much more than, it's, than it pains you, because I love spending breakfast time with you. But this should be my last Saturday break um, through until the summer. So, so that is a good thing. I will see you in two weeks. Have a great fortnight. Have a great rest of the weekend and enjoy the rest of your Lunar New Year celebrations. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.